Okay, guys, um, today um, the topic is uncondemned, uncondemned. And why would that come under teleos? Because I think it's a mature final position that every Christian must stand in if he is to survive on earth. And it's not given enough emphasis. To be, to be Christians who walk uncondemned is uh, a rarity. It's one of the weapons that Satan has been able to yield, uh, wield against Christians very, very powerfully. And so if teleos means coming into a place or living out of a place of maturity, then walking as ones who are uncondemned is critical to both receiving things from heaven and battling things on earth. And so it's a very deliberate topic. It's not something that um, I chose because I didn't have anything else to speak about. It is the position to operate from. It is the position to operate from, to be uncondemned. It's the position I operate from on earth. Let's look at John chapter 8. I think that's where we'll start. Pawn, can you get the Bible from my bag? I think there's a Bible in there. No? Oh, is there a Bible anywhere there? Nope. Cool. John chapter 8. But where's mine? I like my Bible. Okay. John chapter 8. No, not that one. Cool, thanks man. John 8. I'm going to start with that scripture. John chapter 8. Okay. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again at the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, he, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so here is the story that I want to start with. And um, I would suggest that when Jesus stooped down to write the first time, one of the ways we can figure out what Jesus wrote is just by looking at the hand of God in the Old Testament. Because whenever the Holy Spirit um, brings out uh, a certain way of presenting things, He's usually done it before, he, or he wants to have a common reference point. And so I would suggest that the first time Jesus stooped down and started writing, he probably wrote down Exodus 20.13. And Exodus 20.13 says, You shall not commit adultery. That was once written on a stone tablet with the hand of God. And in what he writes, he is disarming his opponents too because they wanted to test him saying, will he stick by the law or will he not? And so on one hand, the first time he probably stooped to write, he wrote Exodus 20, 13 because that was the hand of God in the Old Testament when Moses presented, when God wrote on, on tablets of stone with his hand. And then 
the second time he stoops and writes it's from daniel chapter 5 verse uh 5 and then verse 27 because there was a hand of god there and he probably wrote the word tekel and tekel means you have been weighed and you have been found wanting where there was a king if you go to daniel 5 daniel 5 ah uh, with my bible i know where daniel is daniel 5 verse 5 says suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lamp stand in the royal palace the king watched as a hand wrote it and then in verse 27 it says this is what these words mean many god has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end tekel you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting perez your kingdom is divided and given to the medes and persians so i would suggest to you that the second time he stooped and wrote he wrote the word tekel which means you have been weighed and found wanting and these older men with stones they probably knew these stories better because they had learned them right from when they were kids the first one is exodus 2013 you shall not commit adultery the second one is you have been weighed and found wanting and the men walk away and then you go to colossians 2:14 and 15 and you realize that jesus wanted to make sure that no one is ever condemned again by what is written and so he, if you go to colossians 2:14 and 15 you see the final act that jesus engages in that for once and for all removes this condition of condemnation from my life every time i walk the earth as a believer condemned there's something seriously wrong with my christianity and everybody here walks that way every week and it is wrong so colossians 2 14 and 15 uh starting at 13 when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. I love the next part. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so uh, condemnation is when there's you you are judged guilty. Condemnation is judging you guilty condemnation is stripping you of intrinsic dignity condemnation is making you forfeit what or who you are condemnation is dooming you to punishment and sentence this is what condemnation looks like and it has no place in christianity condemnation is declaring you unfit for use none of these things apply to a christian none of these things which also means then that i am not supposed to cause anyone to feel the weight of condemnation and if i do then i'm doing something very unchrist like i'm doing something very unchrist like so condemnation and this woman that was what was happening to her this woman was being brought before jesus and here are the things that are being uh done to her she's being judged guilty she's being stripped of her intrinsic value as in stripped of who sh- her intrinsic dignity before these men the man who committed adultery for him is missing only she's been caught and she's being stripped of her intrinsic dignity or worth she's unfit for use she's going to be stoned she's doomed to punishment and the punishment was 
you shall not commit adultery. One who is caught in adultery shall be stoned. And it is forfeiting who you are or what you are. There are other people in the Bible who went through the same thing. And we'll talk about them. But this is what condemnation looks like. And we, right from when we are kids, bear the weight of it. And when we come into Christianity, we still continue laboring under it. You take Absalom. And you see David doing it to him. Absalom. Second Samuel. Second Samuel. Where could my Bible go? Do I sound obsessed with my Bible? No, I didn't take it out in the car. Second Samuel. 14. See, in my Bible, I know where it is. Here, I don't know whether it's before Kings or after Chronicles. 2 Samuel 14. 2 Samuel 14. Uh, you see verse 14? Now, guys, the thing is, sometimes condemnation is the result of something you've done. Absalom murdered his uh, half-brother, Amnon. And so, he, he, he is put out of the family. And yet, there is no place for condemnation in Christianity. This is how precious it is to God, and this is how not precious it is to us. And so, Absalom, 2 Samuel 14, verse 14. Uh, this is a woman from Tekoa who's been set up by Joab to talk to David. And then she's uh, pleading for Absalom, and here's what she says, starting at verse 13. The woman said... Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Verse 14. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged for him. Condemnation banishes. It puts you out. And then go to verse... 24, and you see that David still doesn't go through. A man after God's own heart. And this is his son. Verse 24, uh, starting at 23. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. The story of David could have been so different if he had treated Absalom correctly. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was not a good father. And so before you accuse anyone of being an Absalom, make sure that you're not David. Because it's easy, in, especially in churches, for leaders and pastors to say, ah, Derek, oh, this guy or that guy, Derek is in, Derek's brilliant. But uh, it's easy to call someone Absalom. And before you call someone Absalom, you have to make sure that you haven't been David to him. Because you can be a man after God's own heart and you can still treat Absalom wrongly. After being given great wisdom by God through the woman in Tekoa, a woman from Tekoa and Joab, David still says, but he will not see my face. In the ancient Near East, to be shut off from someone's face was the ultimate um, um, indignity that you could heap on someone while living in your own house. I mean, this is why God says, the Lord bless you and make his face too shine upon you. To withdraw your face was to show um, an unwillingness to uh, grant favor. So it doesn't matter that this is a result of Absalom committing a heinous crime. Condemnation still doesn't have a place in the kingdom. And as we speak, you will find that um, we labor under, under condemnation on a regular basis, and it is one of Satan's most insidious um, and most effective weapons. Another guy who went through this was Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 12. Well, stop complaining and find Jonah. Jonah 1. Verse 12, here is a condemnation that is self-imposed, where Jonah tells them, listen, throw me overboard. 
Jonah chapter 1 verse 12 he says there so they asked him what should we do to um, uh, do to you to make the sea calm down for us pick me up and throw me into the sea he replied and it will become calm I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you this is self-condemnation and if you think you don't do it I'm telling you you're living you're living in a dream world. You and I condemn ourselves and are so severe upon ourselves. We have no idea. There's no exception. As I look around you, I'm telling you, to the degree that I know you, and some of you I know better than others, we labor under self-condemnation if nobody else condemns us. Because we are very severe on ourselves. And it robs God of his ability to be who he wants to be because he has to work through my personality sometimes. And then let's look at another one. And leprosy, by the way, was a disease that condemned you. Eh? It just banished you. And sometimes, yeah, uh, I mean, look at Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26. It's about a king called Uzziah. And he does something that he shouldn't have done. He, he breaks boundaries. Yes. But then, because of breaking boundaries, he is struck with leprosy. And it says in Second Chronicles 26, verse 19 to 21, Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar, in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. They hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to live, eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. And so here are situations where in the Old Testament, to condemn somebody was very normal. Because we must not forget what is said in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, that the power of sin is in the law as in the law was given do not do this if you break the law it becomes sin and every time there is sin there is a curse but Jesus comes along and he changes things and we'll talk about that we cannot continue to labor under condemnation it is wrong condemnation is I mean, let's leave the Old Testament and the New Testament and think of divorcees in church. Do you, know, do, you know, do you know the condemnation that comes upon ones that are divorced? Do you know the condemnation that comes upon pastors and leaders that have had affairs? So Jacob, where is the space for judgment and discipline? We'll talk about that. But we must understand this thing called condemnation is very different. It has no space, no place, no traction in the kingdom. If someone does commit an affair, if it is a family, a family deals with it, if it is a church, you dismiss a person. The stigma that you live with when you commit something like that is lifelong, eh? And when we talk about how to think and look at judging, discipline, forgiveness, restoration, condemnation, admonition, uh, then you'll find that they're different, but condemnation has no place. And condemnation is what the enemy uses continuously the moment we do anything wrong. And that is why I'm saying none of you are spared from it because all of us do something wrong. And if you are without wrong, stand up so we can stone you. I'm kidding. That was not supposed to condemn you. So, so <laughs> the point is, because we all do wrong, this is an instrument used by Satan. Because the voice of condemnation is accusation. The voice that condemnation is brought to... Uh, condemnation has a voice, and that voice is accusation. Condemnation has a voice. It is effected through accusation. It is a chief activity for Satan. It is a chief activity of Satan. He is called the accuser. In Job chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, we see that he used accusation as a means to undermine God's verdict on Job, saying skin for skin, accusation. 
In Zechariah 3, there's this brilliant passage where Satan comes against Joshua the high priest. You think he doesn't come against you? Zechariah 3, verse 1. Aaron, Rennie, where are you guys, man? My coffee's getting cold. And you thought it was because I wanted you to be here. I'm just kidding, man, I really do. Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, not the man, is this man not a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Here was a high priest being accused. Condemnation is always brought in through accusation. Let's just look at one more scripture. Revelations 12, verse 10. Just in case you thought you weren't um, part of this um, scheme that the enemy has. Revelations 12, verse 11. Starting at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. This is why he's called the accuser of the brothers. Condemnation has a voice. It is affected through accusation. And the thing is, guys, because Satan no longer has traction in heaven, he tries to smother you in an echo chamber where condemnation and accusation is continuously thrown at you, either through people or through direct voices that you hear, or through the Old Testament law, or through people speaking, or through pastors telling you um, how lousy you are. Whatever the method be, condemnation is still used effectively because Satan has no traction in heaven. He now comes and whispers in your ear. It's insidious. It is soul crushing. It's like putting a hood on someone who's going to be taken to the uh, hangman's news. You put on a hood and inside that hood, you continuously hear these voices that condemn you, that remind you of your past, that remind you of how you did this, remind you of regret, remind you of what if you had not done that. It is this continuous accusation. And the intent is, if I keep accusing you, can I bring you to a place where you walk not as one who is uncondemned, but walk as one who is condemned, desperately trying to swim in righteousness. And the older you are, the more garbage there is to throw at you. Until we come every morning to a place where our filthy garments are removed and a turban is put on our heads, you will continuously be reminded of what you were thinking yesterday and you'll be continuously reminded of your um, feces-spattered um, garments. That's the actual sense of the word in Zechariah 3. It was not some little mud or snow that was thrown on you. Remove this hood, guys. Doesn't matter how young or how old you are. Remove this hood, it must end. I cannot walk as one condemned, but I must walk as one uncondemned because there's far too much fuel that I'm burning up trying to work through this. What it does is it deceives or blinds you to the truth. After that, it defiles you because you're continuously trying to do the Macbeth thing of washing yourself. And then it distorts the finished work of Christ. It distorts the finished work of Christ. He's saying, Jacob, I nailed everything that stands against you. Every uh, indicting legal debt that you owed, I've nailed it to the cross. I can understand you sinning. I can understand you walking away from me. But I do not want you to walk in this place, gray place, 
of condemnation. I do not want you to walk. I want you, Jacob, for the rest of your life to walk as one uncondemned. Run to God before it, uh, condemnation damages your mind yeah? and teach your children how to do this. Children who go to school are, are being condemned by their peers every day, are condemned by culture every day, are condemned by what they learn every day, are condemned by people who think otherwise every day. Teach your children how to deal with accusations and condemnation early. If you don't teach them that, they do not have a safe place to run to. They do not have a refuge. They do not have a place to run to. Psalm 109, two psalms that talk about David's fight with accusation and condemnation are Psalm 7 and Psalm 109. And in Psalm 109, if you go to 21 to 31, Psalm 109, 21 to 31, before that he wishes ill on those who accused him. And you can wish that ill upon the devil. But read, read Psalm 109, 21 to 31. But you, O sovereign Lord, deal well with me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, love, you deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give away from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me in accordance with your love. Let them know that it is in your hand that you, O Lord, have done it. They may curse, but you will bless. When they attack, they'll be put to shame. But your servant will rejoice. My accusers will be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one and to save his life from those who condemn him. From this place of refuge, guys, guys whenever you are struggling with condemnation, be it something that comes, say, from me, be it something that comes from your spouse or your child, be it something that comes from your own sin, be it something that comes from your past or your self-imposed condemnation, be it something that you have done wrong like Absalom, be it something where you've been caught like the woman caught in adultery, regardless of where the condemnation comes from, run to God before it damages your mind. Run to God before it damages your mind because it has the potential to damage your mind. Run to God before it damages your mind. Remember, condemnation has a voice, and that voice is accusation. It uses words, words spoken by people, words spoken by the devil, words spoken by your own mind because you have a mind that is not renewed. From this place of refuge, now begin to figure out, Father, what I feel, how do I judge it? How do I judge it? There's nothing wrong with judging things, eh? One is supposed to judge things. To judge is to use the word as a plumb line and see whether you're right or wrong. And it's based on the nature of God and the nature of the word. Nature of God and nature of the word. That's what you use to judge where you're at. Have the words that have been spoken against me. Do they carry any weight? Father, let me use your word and your nature to judge what has been spoken. Hebrews 4.12 talks about how the word is good for this. It helps us judge between the intents and the motives. goes right between heart and soul. Then there is Okay, were the words spoken a form of admonition? Where God does use words that people speak to rebuke, to correct, so that he won't have to resort to discipline. Second Timothy three sixteen talks about how the word is essential for rebuke, for correction, for admonition. The point is, can I admonish or rebuke somebody, or can somebody do that to me and I hear it, and now I prevent myself from sowing what I should not sow, and I prevent myself from stepping into consequences that I sh don't want to suffer. 
So there is a place for this. But remember the nature of condemnation. Condemnation strips you of your intrinsic dignity. It dooms you to punishment or sentence. It, 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 it makes you forfeit um, who you are. It makes, renders you unfit for use. It always carries in it guilt, punishment, and sentence. That we do not operate under in this kingdom. That is for the world. If you are a new creation and the old order is passing away, step out of the old order in this area because you are a new creation. Even when it is your fault. This is not a grace message. Like a hyper grace message is what I meant. Yeah. When admonition fails, that's when discipline kicks in. That's when discipline kicks in. Where God now disciplines you, sometimes through people, because his intent is through discipline, can I prevent destruction that awaits you, Jacob? And through discipline, can I form new habits? The last word is habits. Third one down, this one. Uh, guys, just so you know, you guys are all wearing masks. I can't hear you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so some, if, if we throw out everything that people say to us, then we'll be um, like horses without blinders and we'll go wherever we want to and get into trouble. There is this place for judging things on your own. There is this place for being rebuked and corrected. And so 2 Timothy 3.16 says the word is good for rebuking, for correcting, for admonition. So there is a place for that. And the intent with God when he wants to rebuke me over something is, hey, Jacob, I'm rebuking you through this person or through this situation so that you do not step into consequences you want to, um, you'll regret and you do not want to sow things that will cause you to reap a certain way. So rebuke is good, but it shouldn't carry in it the ingredients of condemnation. You want to answer the message, Don? We can wait. Okay, just checking. Like that Cuba Gooding movie, if it ain't God, don't take it. Condemnation is a sentence to punish, to forfeit, to attribute fault and guilt. It's fueled and sustained by accusation. It carries penalty. It's an ancient satanic device. It brings sin. It brings guilt. Ah, and then it brings torment and the demonic, and we'll talk about that. On the other hand, after all this, there's this place where you forgive through a process of restitution and restoration, where there's a change of habit. And if people insist that they want to see a change of habit and they say, show us that you're changing. Go through a process of discipline. Be restored. Great, go through it. Any questions before I go on? I just wanted to show you this so that we don't think that this is a life where there's absolutely no discipline, no correction. I'm just saying there is no condemnation. I'm deciding that I will not walk condemned anymore because I condemn myself because I'm severe on how I um, I'm, I'm severe on myself I condemn myself through your words attitudes thoughts I condemn myself through listening to what the devil is saying casting doubt I condemn myself thinking of things that I may have done long ago that I am well forgiven for but it's thrown up again as muck I condemn myself after I sin because it is like, am I back in God's good books? Can I continue from where I started or do I have to work my way through into his good books? I refuse to live like this. It's a horrible way of living when I'm supposed to be someone who is already in the kingdom. This is why I'm saying it's a mature way of living. It's a fully formed way of living. 
Yeah. Yeah, he did. He just destroyed Jesus. Put all his anger upon him who hung on the cross. And it was a bloody mess. Like a piece of butchered meat. The likes of which even Mel Gibson could not capture in the movie Passion. On him we see the wrath of God. And the... You know, the strange thing is you are not forgiven because you're sorry for your sin. You are forgiven because someone took your sin and was punished for it. We often think that it is... Our sorriness that makes God forgive us. Our sorriness is an admission of a violation of a relationship. But we are forgiven because someone was punished cruelly for it and was undone by it. What bothers me often when I read Isaiah 52 is that he was so butchered that his mother could not recognize him because his face was so deformed by the beating. In Mel Gibson's thing, we can still know it's Jesus. The Shroud of Turin, if it ever was, ever was real, was just a bloody mess. There was no outline there, let me assure you. Sorry, Diana, I'll come back to you. Uh, the question that Karuna asked was, um, the Old Testament God seems to be an angry God and the New Testament God seems to be a kind God. Just Does God destroy? And I would say to you that the Old Testament and the New Testament God aren't angry that in Exodus 33, he reveals himself as one who is kind and loving and compassionate to thousands of generations. But his, his absolute hatred for sin is what Israel shows us is happening. Israel should be commended. I mean, if there's any obligation that we owe to that nation, it is that that nation showed us God's holiness. And that nation paid the price for unholiness and exampled for us what we as Christians should be. That I owe them a debt for. And then along comes Christ and he now says, this cannot go on forever. I must step in so that people may come back to me and know me as a kind, good father. As a kind, good father. What does the world think most of God? It thinks that he condemns. Please understand what we're dealing with here. This is far greater than we think. The world thinks that God condemns. What does the world think of the church? That we condemn. And in a sense... The foundational message of God that we are supposed to announce to the world is that we are willing to pour out our lives to communicate this simple truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. <laughs> Romans 8.1 is so much more than a personal stance. It is what God's heart is towards the earth. Does it answer your question? Okay, ask again. No. So if he is kind, he will not destroy. He's, he, he's paid the price to pull back. Now the only way a person can destroy himself is by rejecting Christ. By rejecting life, you can destroy your life. But you cannot, God is not here to destroy. God is here to give life. I have come to give life and life more abundant. Satan comes to steal, kill and destroy. Very clear demarcation. But having given you life, the only way, Jacob, that you can destroy yourself is if you reject that life. Even when the Bible says, because we interpret this wrong quite often, when it says, um, don't you know you are the temple of God and that if you destroy the temple, I'll destroy you. And so people would say to me that if you smoke, you're destroying this temple, so God will destroy you. I'm thinking to myself, shucks, don't want to die for a cigarette. Uh, and so, so, the, so the point was not that he will destroy us if you smoke or do something, to but if you go around destroying the church, 
he will remove you from the equation. And we think death is destruction. And I want to say that death is not destruction. Death is removal. Death is as simple as me removing this red sketch pen from here and putting it inside the piano. That's what death is like. Just remind me before Sheldon, please. <laughs> Diana, you had a question? Diana, it's very hard to figure out what you're thinking with that mask on. I usually know what your question is going to be, when you're going to ask it, whether you're happy with the answer, whether you're unhappy with the answer, whether there's a follow-up question. I know all this. Now you've got the blooming mask on your face. Ask. Can anyone hear and understand? Oh, you do. Okay, can you try again? No, not yet. Okay, go ahead, Diana. Ha, what a relief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll leave the second one alone because it's, it's very long and he does invite everybody and then it doesn't take away our free will. But the answer to the first question, how do you deal with children who are from backgrounds where they don't have Christ and face condemnation on a daily basis? If you are there, you are there to help them come out of their condemnation. If you have a child who you can teach to help themselves first and then help the other, you do not know the amount of money you're going to save their parents in just counseling. Guys, I cannot tell you how condemned kids are on a daily basis, if they are even slightly different in a good way from the rest of the world. You just have to be a little different. Culture condemns you, education condemns you, your teachers condemn you, your friends condemn you, um, parents condemn you. It is a very, very difficult world. If you are there, you're supposed to lift them up. Don't teach your kid to be macho, to kid to be strong, kid to be, you've got to do this alone. All that is a bunch of, is crap a bad word? No, it's a bunch of crap. Teach your children how to cry. Satan uses the curse of the law to condemn, to enslave, to torment, to destroy. Satan uses the curse of the law. He uses the power and the curse of the law. He uses the power of the law. God said, do not do this. Well, if you do this, now I can curse you because you've broken the law. He uses it to condemn, to enslave, to torment, and to destroy. He used it in the Old Testament with Israel. He's still using it today with Christians. This is what God wants to put an end to. The damning legal debt that is imposed on me with a sentence whenever I do wrong gives these powers the right to deceive me, to torment me and to trespass into my life and I don't realize that they have been terminated at the cross because divine justice was met and these powers were shamed. Every time you and I do wrong, my God, when are we going to escape this vicious cycle of going into that place where we feel now that now there's a legal debt owed and that there's a sentence that's going to be imposed. I've got to drive more carefully because I might have an accident. I've got to study more because I might fail my test. I've got to do this better because my child may be harmed. Uh, the, the, the way we think is so stupid, man. And it starts with a whisper in your ear. And that whisper is coming either from your own background or from your family or from the devil. But it is this torment that begins to settle in. I just know that God is here to set us free from the condemnation we feel. 
for the things done in the past and for the things we will do tomorrow. So Jacob, by saying this, aren't you afraid that people will begin to sin? Probably. But that doesn't take away from the truth of this. Just because you may choose to sin now that you won't feel condemned doesn't take away from the truth that you should not feel condemned. We cannot change truth to make you walk in truth. It's an old church trick. Don't tell them the truth because if you tell them the truth they may begin to walk in the truth. So... Christ redeemed me from this cursed life. I love how uh, the Passion Translation puts it in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed me from the cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Christ redeemed me from curse, from condemnation, from the sentence that could be imposed on me, from the legal debt that I would otherwise owe, from the freedom to trespass that I would give my tormentors, in this case the powers, all that he absorbed into himself. He absorbed into himself. He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. He became a curse and dissolved the curse. He absorbed into himself everything that should have fallen on me. Like you owe a legal debt now. The powers can do what they want with you. There's a sentence that is upon you. You have to pay a price. These sicknesses can fall upon you. These gods of Egypt can harm you. All those things he becomes and he absorbs the curse. And in absorbing the curse, he dissolves it off me so that I don't have to live under the fear of it anymore. Not will, has already. has already. This is a frightening bit of Christianity, eh? What? All my sins in the future are forgiven? Pate! No, th that's not the, that's not the right response. Because, and Romans 6 deals with it. Romans 6 deals with it. Because there is a, there is this truth that we need to confront, that when grace increases, sometimes lawlessness increases. And the heart of many grows cold. But it is not something Jesus is going to cancel because of my willfulness to exploit his kindness. Because I know God's grace is plenty, I can go lawless. And I, my heart can grow cold. But he still won't change his ways. It only means that these things will kick in a little more. Admonition, rebuke, discipline will kick in more. I come from a place that does not doom to sentence, that does not rob me of dignity, that does not make me guilty, that doesn't do those things. God does not do them that way. Even when I discipline on behalf of God, I may convey it wrongly, but he does not. We're going to break bread later, and this is a sentence I want us to break bread around. If I am in him, what happened to him happened to me. If I am in him, what happened to him happened to me. If I am in him, what happened to him happened to me. I took that line from someone else. It's a brilliant line. If I am in Christ, then what happened to Christ happened to me. You want to see what happened to you? Go read Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6 and 10 to 12. What happened to him happened to me. I do not carry them anymore. If I am in Christ, what happened to him happened to me. I must walk free. I must walk free. This is why in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, Jesus is saying, listen, your tormentors, I disarmed. Your tormentors, I dethroned. Your tormentors, I paraded in chains. The very tree that I was hung on like in the movie Transformers, transformed into a victorious chariot. And in front of me, now paraded in chains, the very tormentors who used to demand a price of you, who used to threaten you, who frightened you, who condemned you, who brought guilt on you, who accused you, who brought whispers 
I am saying to you, Jacob, that the tree which I hung transformed into a victorious chariot. I've dethroned them. I've disarmed them. I parade them in front of me as prisoners in chains so that you, no longer for the rest of your life, if you were to live another 40 years, will ever walk as anyone else but the uncondemned. You know, it robs the tormentor of power. It's like Velcro condemnation. It, it, it causes the uh, elemental spirits of the world, it causes tormentors, it causes accusers, it causes sin, and it causes the demonic to be able to attach easily because you walk in condemnation. Condemned sometimes by you, condemned sometimes by others, condemned sometimes by your pastor, condemned by your friends, your spouse, condemned by what you think is God. One of the things I want to do before we end is write down accusations that you still carry in your heart. Write down condemnation that you feel. And then come to a place where we end the torment in those areas. This is why in Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore, in view of all that we've just said, there remains, I love this, there remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who have joined their lives to Jesus, the anointed one. <laughs> Listen to it. Therefore, in view of everything we have said, there remains no longer an accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life, with Christ, the anointed one. I mean, Captain America has a shield, right? Use it, man. Every time you begin to face condemnation, I can handle Captain America. Thor is a little too mythological for me. But Captain America just got a wrong injection. Any questions? If God is justified, who can condemn? If God has justified, who can condemn? If God has justified, who can condemn? Does the devil remind you, oh, you went to this particular land, I told you not to go, and you did this, and look what has happened, and you haven't been able to free yourself for years. Oh, remember what you did? You were married and you did this. Oh, remember what you did? You were not married, you knew this was wrong, and you did it. Oh, remember what you did? You've been indulging in porn for this thing, you think anything's going to happen good for you. You think just because one or two things happen good, you think day after tomorrow you won't go back into your sin and it won't happen again. What do you think you're worth? You think Jacob doesn't know, he'll find out one day. God will tell him. That's on the extreme side. On the other side, what did your spouse say? What did your fiance say what did your wife say we take these accusations and we let them stick when we are supposed to filter them through these three things how father must i judge it can i use the plumb line of the word to see if this is real is this who i am may i say to you that we have a decent estimation of who we are and an accusation is always supposed to undermine the decent estimation of who i am Paul never says become something. Paul always says become who you are. Paul is never saying I need you to become holy. He says you are holy so behave holy. Part of the reason the church cannot tell the world that they are not condemned is because the church feels condemned. How do you tell somebody else, hey, no, you're really not condemned, but there's this loud voice saying, of course you're condemned, and he, he's more condemned than you. Guys, being a forgiven people is critical, eh? A forgiven people are a people who are not condemned. Being a forgiven people is critical. Do you realize that the basics of Christianity... 
the basics of Christianity is that we are a forgiven people. And do you realize that's the biggest struggle for all of us? We do not even believe that we are a forgiven people. That is like the lowest rung of Christianity. I'm a forgiven people. And if I can't even start there, I'm struggling with, I mean, tomorrow's will bring its own set of sins. I'm a forgiven people. What is forgiveness? Why, do, why should you ask for forgiveness? What does forgiveness get you? What does forgiveness get you? I'm looking for a specific answer which you won't give because it's in my mind. And so it'll be hard to guess. What does forgiveness get you? That which is in my mind. So let me tell you. So, so let me... Smart answers with that mask on, huh? So let me tell you what, uh, what is in my mind. Forgiveness gets you God. Forgiveness gets you God. First Peter 3.18 says it, that he might bring us to God. Forgiveness gets you God. And therefore, condemnation and unforgiveness separates you or keeps you distant enough from God. Forgiveness gets you God. Can you and I ever come to a position this week where we actually believe that I am a forgiven people despite what I may do tomorrow or despite what I may have done an hour ago? Can, can we live there? I assure you, if you begin to live there, you will walk in greater righteousness than unrighteousness. This is why this is such a part of Telios, a mature, complete people. But it begins with these basics. I can't remember the last time I've consciously thought that I'm a forgiven people throughout the day. I know how to ask for forgiveness. I'm really good at it now. But to walk in the sense of I'm a forgiven people? When I look at you, do I think so? No. I'm looking straight at Diana and the answer is no. Oh, don't even look at Mike. Are you feeling condemned, brother? <laughs> There's a difference between con yeah. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation, eh? <laughs> so, if you're a forgiven people, it's such a relief not to be thinking it's four o'clock. Is that clock right? Or is it 2.15? Darn, I just thought I'll try it. <laughs> A forgiven people are confident that there is no hostility or held back anger against them. What a cool place to live. Where you've just sinned, but you're confident that there is no hostility or held back anger against you. What a cool place to live. You really think you'll continue sinning? I doubt it. Kindness has a way of shifting your headspace, man, and your heart space. A forgiven people do not experience separation or thoughts of abandonment. They do not experience this. Even when they have gotten it wrong, even then when they have sinned and really blown it, even when they have... <laughs> they do not think like this. A forgiven people 
Do not think in terms of fear, torment, <laughs> fear, torment, punishment. Forgiven people don't think like this. Forgiven people don't think like this. They don't think fear, torment, punishment, affliction. Guys, what's happened to us, guys? How far we are from this? This is basics of Christianity. Do not, uh, forgiven people do not experience separation or thoughts of abandonment. Forgiven people are confident that what I did is not remembered. Forgiven people are confident that what I did is not remembered. Forgiven people believe that there is immediate Forgiven people believe that there is immediate, condition-free intimacy when they turn to God. Ah, I used to struggle with this. I used to struggle with this. Can't be, can't be. After what I've done, I cannot, it cannot be immediate. It can't be condition-free. I've got to prove myself. <laughs> uh, could you put Karen on probation for two months? <laughs> yeah, she said because of this teaching, no more probation, and that she was she was condemning you to joblessness. <laughs> yeah, but don't worry, I got your back, man. Yeah. Forgiven people only know kind-hearted compassion and if necessary kind-hearted discipline it changes the nature of God kind-hearted compassion and kind-hearted discipline <laughs> If I ever disciplined Phoebe, it would be so kind-hearted. Why? Because I like her. She ain't my child. I can handle her for about 20 minutes. What when God is your father and he's so much better? A forgiven last one, a forgiven people no boldness of entry into his presence boldness of entry into his presence that's what forgiven people live like guys the world does not see a god who is good because christians don't walk like this man i mean we are supposed to be a relatively decent church that's learned enough that's taught pretty well that knows freedom and knows him as father and yet we are struggling with this any questions because i felt that it's one thing to talk about government and all that stuff in telios but this is something so basic that we're not walking in. So how do I rule with my nature tethered to God when I don't have this one sorted out? That I'm uncondemned. And this is the one that, I mean, what did Jesus come to do? I came to restore people to myself. And how do I restore them? By forgiving them so that they can walk as a forgiven people with me. If I don't get that right, what can I get right? Can you live condemnation free this week? Can you try it?
can you try and live condemnation free this week? It doesn't mean that you won't get things wrong. It doesn't mean that you won't do wrong. It doesn't mean that you won't be sinful. But it does mean that you can still be condemnation free by summarizing these points some way in your head and saying, okay, I'm going to walk condemnation free this week. Can you walk condemnation free? Where accusation, sin, and torment will not adhere to you because you no longer wear Velcro shirts. There's, guys, remember, there's something death-delivering about condemnation. There's something death-delivering about condemnation. Both when I deliver it and when I receive it. There's something death-delivering over it. Romans 8 verse 2 says, And therefore the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the spirit of the, uh, spirit of, uh, from the law of death. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. There's something death delivering in condemnation. It, 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 it destroys something in you. But the, spirit of the, but the spirit of life that is flowing in you, that is flowing here today, can liberate you from condemnation. So I want you to do this right now. I want you to write down accusations that are still alive in your heart, in your mind, either from the long past or from the recent yesterday. Uh, write down some accusations that come to mind. Write down the voice of what you're being condemned with. Don't get too forensic or too ana ana analytical about it. Just write down as it comes. And then after you do that, write down the torment it is bringing with it. What is the torment? What is the fear? Fear. 